If you were to do a word association, and I said, give me a word that comes to mind when you hear the word giving, what would it be? What would that first word be? Perhaps for some of us it might be duty. It might be conviction. It could be sacrifice. It could be not again when we hear the word giving, right? But at the same time, many of us would associate the word receiving, right? The word receiving with grace. We may not quite say it that way, but we often do, don't we? When we say things like, oh, that gift was such a blessing, right? Or that gift was totally unexpected. Man, I didn't deserve that. What are we talking about? Grace. I received something undeserved, unexpected. That's grace. So we often associate receiving with grace. But do we, res- do we associate giving with grace as well? Well, the Apostle Paul does, and I believe we should as well. You see, receiving and giving are two sides of the same coin called grace. Receiving and giving are two sides of the same coin called grace. We saw in verse 1 that we just read, it's because of the grace of God given among the poor Macedonian churches. It's because of this grace that they, what? Eagerly, abundantly gave. Catch that phrase in there as well? They gave, not only according to their means, but they gave what? Beyond their means. The church in Macedonia which Paul is using as an example, excelled in the grace of giving. The poor, extremely poor, says Macedonians, excelled in this grace. It reminds me of the story in Exodus when the Israelites were building the tabernacle. Perhaps you remember it. It comes from Exodus chapter 36. I love this excerpt. I'm going to start with verse 2. If you want to turn there with me, you may. I will read it. Exodus 36, starting with verse 2, and I'll read through verse 7. Capture, capture the heart here. Capture the attitude. Here we have an example of what excelling in this act of grace looks like. Here's the Old Testament version. Verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, And said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. The people were restrained from giving more. They were giving in abundance. They were giving even beyond their means. You see, the Israelites in this passage here had been delivered from the bondage of Egypt, as you know, as he went through in our book of Exodus. Not only that, they had received the promise that God was going to be among them, that they were his people, and that God would dwell among them. And here they are making a tabernacle, the fulfillment of the promise that God would dwell among them. They are recipients of this revelation, this promise, and they have experienced God's grace, his indwelling presence, his deliverance, and they are giving in return. They're not giving under compulsion, are they? Oh, we see a picture here of cheerful, eager, joyous giving in response to the grace of God. Well, if that was the case for the Israelites, how much more for us today? Because of the grace shown to us through the person 
and work of Jesus Christ, our deliverer, the one who came to tabernacle to dwell among us. John 1. Oh, a quote here from Tim Keller in your notes. If we do not give away our money in remarkable proportions, we have not grasped or we are not currently remembering Christ's generosity, or you could say grace, in saving us. Let us put it more starkly. You will always have effortlessly, you will always give effortlessly to that which is your salvation, to those things which give your life meaning. If Jesus is the one who saved you, your money flows easily into his work, his people, his causes. If, however, your real religion is your appearance or your social status or your pleasure, your money flows most easily into those items and symbols. In other words, where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? You see, it's through our giving that we show ourselves as those who are the children of God. It's through our giving that we demonstrate who we belong to. We read in 2 Corinthians, that passage we read earlier, chapter 8, resuming on, now in verse 8. Paul saying this, I say this not as a command, that is to excel in the grace of giving, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Another quote here from Robert Murray McChaney. There are many hearing me who now know that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with his lifeblood than with its money. How true it is. Well, perhaps you would say honestly, candidly, you know, Corey, I'm, I'm not excelling in the grace of giving. Where do you begin? Where do you go to? This is the case. You shouldn't be surprised. Don't think you are. We go back to, and we begin with, the gospel. We go back to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. Let's read on. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-existent curator who had experienced fellowship with God from all eternity, clothed himself in humanity, his incarnation, took on flesh. Right? Philippians 2 became a servant. And what? Became obedient even to death upon a cross. Why? So we might become rich. What does it mean, become rich? That we might be saved. Not just that, that we might receive the benefits of salvation, of forgiveness, not only on this life, but in the life to come that is in heaven as well. For all eternity, Christ became poor that we might become rich. Paul is saying, here is the model here is the motive. Here is the power for all giving. Right here, found in Christ, found in the gospel. And yet we find it difficult, don't we, many times, to forgo a meal, to forgo a movie, to forgo maybe a new piece of furniture, to forgo an upgrade on your computer or phone or what have you in order to give. If that's the case, and you would say, you know what, I'm not excelling, and I'm not giving joyfully nor cheerfully, perhaps the gospel has grown dim in your heart. It's not functioning as it should in this area of giving. For Christ is what the model, but the very empowerment for us to give as well. It, the gospel is the starting point. It's what we must go back to time and time again. Well, what are some guidelines then? We go to the gospel. We see how we ought to live. We see how we ought to give. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? 
And how do we evaluate if we really are excelling in the gospel? I mean, what, what does that mean exactly? How do I measure generosity? Well, first of all, it is a hard issue. But I think there's things we can look at as well that help us in discerning our own hearts. Because the fact is we can often deceive ourselves, can't we? Thinking that we're being generous, that we're giving abundantly when we're simply not. You see, as New Testament believers, right, we live under the new covenant. We're not under the law. And we're prone to, we can often say, well, I'm living by grace now, not the law. But we can use that word grace and grace giving to give ourselves a free card, a pass, when it comes to our lack of giving. I'm under grace now, not the law, hallelujah. But we use that incorrectly, and we use that to excuse our passivity, and yes, I believe our disobedience in this area. So let's look at some guidelines that we have in Scripture for giving. I think it is helpful that we start off with the Old Testament that we understand the concept of tithe. We talk a lot about it on Sundays, right? Now it's time for what? Our tithes and our offerings. But what does that mean exactly? I've mentioned it a few times as we've got it there for our tithing exhortation, but I want to go into it a little more deeply that you would understand the principle, that it would serve as a guideline. And we're going to talk about exactly how it does apply for us today as well. You see, those in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they were required to pay a tithe. A tithe literally means a tenth, which is what? 10%. So is giving 4% a tithe? No, it's not a tenth. A tithe is a tenth. The Israelites were required to give a tenth, a tithe of all their agricultural produce, that which they collected and harvested from the fields, i.e. their income. They're also required to give a tithe of their cattle, their herds as well. You could say of their capital. And it was to be given unto the Lord, one-tenth. We read in Leviticus 27, I'll read verses 30 and 32. We see the tithe operating here. The Lord saying, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And verse 32, and every tithe, that's tenth, of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy, that is set apart, paid, given back to the Lord. Why? Why did God establish a tithe? What's, what's the point? Well, I believe the point is this. As we talked about in previous lessons, God owns it all, right? He owns not just 10%, he owns 100%. But giving back to God was a way of reminding his people that everything belonged to the Lord. That we are simply what? Stewards, right? We are simply stewards or trustees of all that God has graciously given us. So the people were commanded to repay 10% of their goods as a reminder and representation that the other 90% also belonged to the Lord. So they gave a tenth as a reminder, representation, that all they had belonged to him and was given from his hand. In fact, not to do this, not to tithe, was considered robbing God of what was his. In a well-known passage we read in Malachi 3, verse 8 and 9, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. To fail to tithe according to God's commands was to rob God what was rightfully his. But catch this as well. The tithe was not only, yes, it was a command, but it was also a divine invitation to God's people. Divine invitation to do what? To test him. To see if his promises to provide are true. God is saying, this tithe, I want you to test me. I want you to live by faith and see if I will not come through in my promises. 
So we read Malachi 3, resuming on verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That, my friends, is a glorious promise and test. God wants to show forth his promise, his character, his glory to you as you give and he provides back in return. You see, tithing was really a form of worship, wasn't it? In the Old Testament. It was acknowledging God's ownership, right, of all things, in his grace. And it was also a test of faith. Not only do we see this test of faith operating in this Malachi passage here, but we see the test of faith also operating elsewhere in this principle of the Old Testament called first fruits giving. I'll explain that. You see, the Israelites were required to tithe, yes, but with their tithe, to give was called the first fruits, the very first, the very best of their crops and their herds. But to do that required faith, didn't it? I'm to give the first of my harvest. When I do that, I'm trusting that God is going to provide the rest, that God is going to bring in the remainder of the harvest for us to live off and to enjoy. I'm to give not the leftovers, but the best unto the Lord, trusting that the rest will be sufficient and more sufficient to meet all my needs and that of my family as well. You see, the, the term tithe refers to the quantity that was to be given under the Old Covenant, a tithe being a tenth, right? First fruits refer to not the quantity, but the quality that is the very nature of the gift given. And that nature was to be the best without blemish in the first fruits. But Lord, if I give you my income off the top, if I give you a tithe from my gross pay, I may not have anything left to pay the bills. And God says, exactly. Exactly. Giving the first fruits, giving the tithe, was a statement of faith, of lordship. Of lordship. And it's the same for us today. Furthermore, this tithe that was collected, where did it go? Who got it? It was for the spiritual leaders. There's lights, right? Those who reform the sacrifices, it was to sustain them. Like what we give today, whether you call it a tithe or not, same principles in operation. Al, myself, Jose, we live off the tithe, as you know, that is given to the church. There's no other source of income. God designed it that way in the Old Testament, and so it is today as well in the New. It's through your giving, your tithe, which is obedience to the Lord, which is a test of faith from which we also benefit and then are able to pastor and give back to you as well. But the tithe wasn't it. It wasn't the ceiling. The tithe in the Old Testament wasn't even the maximum. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The tithe was to be the floor. It was to be the starting place of all giving. The Israelites were also encouraged to give what we called free will offerings. We read that earlier when they were giving the free will offerings to the construction of the tabernacle, that was beyond the tithe. That was beyond the tenth. I love how Randy Alcorn puts it. He titles one of his chapters in his book, chapter 12, Tithing, the Training Wills of Giving. I like that. The Training Wills of Giving. Just this last year, our youngest Stephen uh, learned how to ride a bike without training wheels. But for that period before he learned, he would zoom around the block with us. But he was restricted. He was limited with his training wheels. He would bobble back and forth. And he would, he would make it with us on our little rides, but he would also be quite a bit behind. And the day came when we took out the training wheels. It was difficult. He cried a lot. He'd make it about five feet and crash. Finally, after about the second week, you know, he got going. His confidence increased. 
And from then on, man, I can't even catch him. I mean, he is off around the block. He is cruising the little legs, pumping as fast as they can. There's freedom. I believe the Lord wants to bring us, perhaps you, to that point. Perhaps you're not even at the tithe right now. I believe that is a matter of obedience and faithfulness. But I believe for some of you, God may want to encourage you to go beyond that as well, to take off the training wheels. Oh, you're giving, but there's a freedom to be had. God wants you to go. He wants you to charge ahead. And it can't be done with the training wheels on. It comes by taking them off. Is it scary? Yes, it is. Initially, until you gain your balance and composure. But once you do, you can fly. And I believe there's things the Lord has for you that won't come apart from this tithing and then taking out the training wheels and learning to cruise. May it be for us as well as a church. But you say, Cor, that's great. I hear about tithing, training wheels, all this. But what about today? We're not under the old covenant. We're New Testament believers today. My friends, I don't believe it should be any different today. Well, it is true that Christ did come. He did fulfill, right? All the Old Testament. That is true. Although he fulfilled the Old Testament, he did not render it irrelevant. I believe the tithe today serves as a guideline. Not as a law, but as a guideline which isn't reduced or somehow lowered by the fact that we're now under grace and not under law. I believe the grace of Jesus Christ has come to exceed the law, not to lower its standards for us today. And that's included in the area of giving, the area of tithing. You see, living under God's grace does not mean that we live by a lower standard than the law. See, where do you get that? Many places. But one excellent place to go is to the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, right? When Christ is addressing the disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say about the law? Oh, you've heard it said. Because let, let me tell you. He goes, if you lust, you have committed adultery. If you're angry at your brother, what? You have committed murder. Christ did not come to lower the standard. But he came to address the heart. And when he comes, and when the grace of God addresses the heart, the standard is not lowered. If anything, I would argue it is increased. Not by law, but by grace. It is magnified. Much more I could say about that, the tithing. Much more I want to say. I'll leave it at that. If you have questions at the end, we can go back to that. I want to get back to the guidelines. How then I want to give today. Or the tithe is a guideline. Number two, the necessity of sacrifice also must inform our giving today. We're not to stop at the tithe. It's a minimum guideline. It's a foundational percentage. But we're to go beyond duty to radical, radical giving and sacrifice. We read earlier, remember about the Macedonians. We can just kind of skim over that passage. The Macedonians who were what? In extreme poverty. And yet what? They gave beyond their means. And yet Paul held them up as an example to be emulated. The radical, joy-filled, graceful giving was held up as an example to the church at Corinth. How about Christ? I've mentioned this before. Remember the widow? Who gave the what? The one might? What did Christ say? What was his commentary as he watched the widow give all that she had? Did he pity her? Did he call her a fool? No. He lifted her up as an example. Yes. I think that would qualify as radical giving, wouldn't you? All that she had. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. To answer this question, well, how much should I give? He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. More than we can spare. Love this quote as well from Jonathan Edwards. I can't afford to give without greatly inconveniencing myself. 
If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burdens at all? If you want to give without being burdened, friend, you're not giving sacrificially. I don't believe you're giving to the intent or to the extent that Christ would have for you. To bear each other's burdens and take the cross upon ourselves requires sacrifice. How do we know? From Christ, the model and the motive. He is the one who has shown us the way. Sacrificial giving should and will cut into our lifestyle. If it doesn't, you aren't giving enough. You are not giving sacrificially. You are not giving as Christ gave. And you are not excelling in this grace, this act of grace of giving. So the tithe is a guideline. Secondly, the necessity of sacrifice in our giving. Thirdly, the importance of intentionality. Paul directed the Corinthians to be systematic and thoughtful in their giving. We read in 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I say intentional, I mean regular, intentional, systematic, thoughtful giving. Christ giving himself wasn't spontaneous reaction to the human need. Oh, wow. You guys are a real mess. You know what? I think I'll die on the cross. It wasn't a spontaneous reaction. It was planned from the very beginning, from all of human history. God planned through the Father to redeem his people. It was not spontaneous. It was thought out. It was intentional that Christ would come to be crushed for our iniquities according to the Father's will. Secondly, spontaneous giving often amounts to giving as I feel led. But here's the question. How often are you, quote, led? Aren't you glad that Christ didn't use the same logic when he bowed in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he weighed the reality of bearing the wrath of God upon himself, aren't you glad at that point he didn't wait to be led according to his feelings to the cross? But Lord, that your will take this cup from me as he sweat, sweat drops of blood. No, it was planned. It was not spontaneous. It was not according to how he felt led. It was in obedience to the Father's plan from the very beginning. I agree with Randy Alcorn in your notes there. That unless people give systematically, they rarely give substantially. People who don't give systematically will invariably overestimate how much they give. I found that true in my own life. Perhaps you have as well. And you may be conversely surprised how much you do give should you establish a regular pattern of giving. If you're paid weekly, I suggest you give weekly. If you're paid monthly, I suggest you give monthly as well. Why? That we may excel. Excel in the grace of giving. So you may say tonight, you know, I, I wish I could give, but I can't afford to. As I talked about last week, you would say, yes, Corey, that's me. I have so much debt, and things are so tight right now. May I suggest this to you? Could it be that you can't afford to give because you are not giving? Say that again. Could it be that you can't afford to give, or you can't even afford to tithe, in your own mind that is, because you're not giving? Sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? That's not how we ordinarily think. That's how God thinks. Let's look at uh, Luke 6, verse 38. I believe it's in your notes. 
Give. Notice the order here. Give. That's first. Number two. Secondly, and it will be given to you. Give first, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You catch that? The measure with which you use to give will be the measure in which you receive in return according to God's word. If you can't afford to give, perhaps you need to give more according to God's word. It's not my words, it's not my logic, it's the Lord's. And I have found it true. And many I know, perhaps you yourselves, can testify of the truth and the wisdom of this passage. To give is to receive. And to receive is all of God's grace. Well, if giving then is an act of grace, how about saving? Can saving be an act of grace as well? I want to explore that issue next. First give and then save. But if we're to be radical, grace-filled givers, is there any place then for saving in our budget and our finances? Or is that, well, withholding from God and robbing Him? Good question. And the answer is, it depends. I think you love that answer. It depends. That's not a cop-out. Let me explain. Indeed, we have indication in the Scripture that saving can be wise. Proverbs 6, 6 in your notes. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant is what? Wise. Because she saves. She stores up according to her needs. How about Joseph? Remember Joseph in Egypt? How about him? We're told that what? He wisely saved up during seven years of plenty, right? For what? For the seven years of famine that was to come. And in doing so, he saved a nation and a people. So surely we see there is some wisdom in saving. God is not against saving. In fact, it may be wise and can be wise. I believe it is wise. But saving can also be foolish. And that's where we have to be careful here. Let us read the parable of the rich fool. Luke 12. I'm going to start with verse 16 and I'll read through verse 21. I think you have the reference in your notes, but I'll read the passage here. Luke 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, Ah, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, Drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. In the things you have prepared, whose will they be. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Church, friends, such hoarding is foolishness. And it's just not the plight of the rich either. As you know, we can make a case that we are part of the rich. But it's not just for the rich. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? Remember that manna? What was going on with that manna thing, right? How much manna did God provide? Enough for each day, except for the night before the Sabbath, which God provided for two days. I think there's a point to be made there, don't you? They were to save God's daily portion of manna. They would eat it, excuse me, to consume it that day and trust God for the manna each day thereafter. God was teaching his people a lesson to depend upon him for daily provision. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us what? Our what? Daily bread. 
to trust God for the daily provision. What happened when there's lights and I trust God? Remember some in the camp? They collected it for two. They saved some. It was filled what? With maggots and it stunk. It perished. And Moses was angry. And so was God. So when is saving wrong? When is it right? When does saving become hoarding? That's the question, isn't it? Well, I'd say this simply. It's a matter of the heart. When your intention in saving is to replace God, i.e., that I no longer have to depend upon him, I believe your saving is hoarding, and it is wrong. If your goal is financial independence, we hear that a lot, right? Go to a financial counselor to achieve financial independence. That's okay, but be careful how you define that. If you say financial independence, and you mean independence from God and having to trust him, the Bible calls you a fool. Repeatedly in Scripture, we are called to live by faith in God's provision for us. Right? The well-known verse, Matthew 6, right? But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. What are those things? The provision and necessity of life. Shelter, clothing, food, that which we need. That is to be the paradigm in which we are to live. Trusting in God, doing his will, and trusting him for daily provision. Well, hey, okay. If that's the case, Corey, well, I mean, I, I, I'm with you, man. I can just do nothing, right? Trust God. Hallelujah. Just trust God to financial needs. Just let go. Let him work. You're free of any responsibility. Well, as I believe you know, that doesn't work either. It does not please the Lord. <laughs> While hoarding is a means of replacing God, savings is a means of not presuming upon God. Savings is a means of not presuming upon God. And by the stats, it appears that there's a lot of presumption taking place in America today. 85% of Americans have less than $250 in available savings when they reach age 65. This equates to saving $6 a year. Not counting, I believe, some retirement funds and employing matching programs. Talk about actual savings they have access to. $6 a year. In the event of lost job or unexpected expenses, the average American family is only three to six weeks away from bankruptcy. That is how we live today. If that is us, I believe we are presuming upon God if we are not saving. But if the reason for these stats were faith in God and a conviction that one should not hang on to his or her resources, but give them to meet others' needs, i.e. like the Macedonians, like the poor widow, I believe you're in good company if that is the reason why you don't have savings. But let's be honest. I feel that's not the case for most of us. Is it not? No, it's not trust. Trust is not the reason that we have little savings in most cases. The fact that we don't have much savings is because of our own self-indulgence, our presumption, and really just our lack of discipline in saving that accounts for our woeful lack of savings today. To have an emergency fund of liquid savings that you can access to cover at least three months' expenses, I believe is wise. One person I read called it a GOK fund. That is a God only knows fund. I believe there's wisdom there to expect the unexpected and to have a fund for emergency situations. To save for retirement, or at least the retirement years. I don't believe retirement per se is biblical, but we will reach an age we may not be able to work anymore. I believe to save for that time can be wise. Not to save so you can simply indulge the flesh and really travel around the world. But to save in order that you may be able to serve God's church, that you may be able to save in order to serve God's purposes. 
without being a burden to others, to the church. If that's your motive, I believe saving is good and it is wise for us as well. To put away money now and to use compound interest to your advantage, I believe is wise. Compound interest is your best friend. Start saving early. If you're not saving, start now. If you have children, teach them, the youth, to start early, even if it's just a little bit. Here's a little test to drive the point home. Say Johnny, at age 19, invests $2,000 per year. So Johnny's putting away about $166 a year, okay? He does that from age 19, his first job, okay? And he does it annually at a nice investment of 12% for eight years until he's age 26. And then for the next 39 years, he doesn't put a penny more in. Got it? Age 19 to 26, he puts in 2000 a year at 12%. Now take Billy, on the other hand. At age 27, he begins to invest $2,000 also at the same rate of return. But instead of investing for eight years, he invests that $2,000 each year for 39 years, all the way to the retirement age of 65. Who will have more money? Johnny, who gave or saved for eight years, or Billy, who saved for 39 years? We could probably suspect what the answer is. It's the first. It's Johnny. At the end, at age 65, Johnny, who saved for eight years, will end up with 2,200, excuse me, $2,288,000. Billy would be worth $700,000 less, even though he gave for 39 years. Excuse me, I say gave to his fund. He saved for 39 years. The point here is not so much the numbers. It's the wisdom of saving early. Establish the discipline of saving now, even if it's a little bit. And remember, our goal is not to keep ourselves from having to depend upon God. Our goal is keeping us from presuming upon God due to our lack of discipline, due to our self-indulgent ways. And the same goes for insurance as well. I just felt compelled just to mention this lastly here in your notes. Insurance is such a part of our thinking today and financial package. Insurance can be a means of grace. But insurance can also be a means in which we try to cover and account for every catastrophe that may hit us. And frankly, there's no limits to that thinking. We have today, I don't know how many insurance, countless insurance policies that you can buy, right? Auto insurance? Homeowner's insurance, life insurance, flood insurance, medical insurance, dental insurance, mortgage insurance, renter's insurance, appliance insurance, and what others? You can insure your voice. Pet insurance. Pet insurance. Sure there is. You can insure your voice. You can insure anything. You can insure your hands, your arm, you name it. Once again, our goal must not be financial independence from God. But I believe from parents, and I would add, from government as well, all right? As I've read and thought about it more, I've become increasingly concerned with life insurance, which is really death insurance. That'd be more appropriate. <laughs> death insurance policies. It's not activated until you die, right? The reality is, for many of us, including myself, I'm worth more dead than alive. Is that wise? I'm worth more dead than alive. I don't believe life insurance is wrong. Like I said, I do have some, but I'm questioning the amounts right now. You see, it's not wrong. In fact, it's right that the church would step in and will step in to help meet needs in times of unexpected loss or disaster. For that is good and that is right. Well, we shouldn't presume upon the church, nor should we presume upon God, Neither should we necessarily dismiss what Randy Alcorn calls community insurance for corporate insurance. 
community insurance being the church. The church's benevolence. The church's help in time of need. Are we putting all our stock and covering our bases? We have to have everything covered. Every catastrophe covered. My friends, that's the quick way to bankruptcy. If not bankruptcy, we must question, is it a good stewardship of our money? It might sound noble, but is it wise? I think God has given us other means of help and protection as well than simply insurances for everything we possess and own. The fact is we need to give as believers how good it is to give when someone is in need. I grew up, as some of you know, with a single mom in a situation where my mom never thought I should be or could not have planned for. We didn't have much at all. We didn't have a car. We didn't have hardly any clothes. All that we received, clothes, food, and transportation came from the church and friends. I still remember getting picked up on Sunday mornings in the church van faithfully every morning so we go to church. People gave faithfully to buy that van for the gas money for that van that I as a little kid could be picked up and attend church. Where we lived, it would have been very difficult, even through the bus system, to go to church. And yet, by God's grace, people in the church who had more gave to those who had less that we would benefit. My friends, that is the church. That is good. That is a wise use, I believe, of money. And now, as one who has a family and a steady income, I have the glorious ability now, to some degree, to be able to give to others, to help them in the church, those who are in a place of need, to be a part of that community insurance where now I can help. You see, the attempt to insure ourselves from, every, from ever being in a place of need, the desire to protect ourselves from ever having to ask for help, I think is prideful. I think it can lead us to be overinsured. I think we can be overinsured. I'm not going to give you numbers tonight, what that means. You need to figure it out for yourself. But if your motive is to cover every possible conceivable need, that you would never, ever be in a place of need to ask. I believe it is prideful. I believe the church is there. We don't presume upon the church, but the church is such that we are to give to brothers and sisters in need. And that's what's wrong, I believe, with putting too much stock in insurance. It's having so much money tied up in the future in insurance that you are unable to meet the present, that you are unable to meet the pressing needs especially of the poor, of the needy, and of the lost in our midst. And I believe that starts with the church. I believe it goes beyond that. But if all your money is tied up in long-term savings, retirement plans, and insurances, and you have no money, no disposable income to give to those needs, I'm not talking about the tithe now. I'm talking about above the tithe, the free will offerings to those who are in need. I believe you need to reconsider your saving, and perhaps your insurance. Here's the reality. On the final day of judgment, I don't like this verse. It convicts me. I'm going to read it to you. I'm continually challenged by it. It's Matthew 25, verse 34 and 35. The day of final judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Christ is talking about himself. When we give to those in need, when we give to the poor, we learn from verse 40 of this chapter that he's talking about brothers and sisters. I believe this passage is specifically talking about those in our midst, fellow believers and saints. When we give to them in need, we are giving to Christ himself. Proverbs 28, 27 says this, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. We cannot hide our eyes. I think it starts with meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but as I said, it's not limited to them. I have been personally convicted by this, as I've walked through the biblical theology of possessions and money in the Bible, God is working on my heart. 
I must ask the question, why has God given me abundance? Oh, I know I don't feel like I have abundance, but I do. Is it so I can then pour it into my retirement or increase the levels of my insurance policy? Or could God be providing me wealth or income for the purpose of sharing it with those in need? I think the answer is yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14. Paul saying, Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Could God have given you that bonus, that extra pay raise? Not that you can simply hoard it or spend it, but to give it to those in need. And then vice versa, that you, when you're in that time of need, may receive in return as well. Remember? Community insurance. Am I thinking merely about my retirement age, 25 years from now? For me, when I save and insure, or am I thinking 25,000 years from now into all eternity of the dividends my giving will have, both to the poor and particularly to the lost, those who are saved? So here's the bottom line. Is my money free? Am I spending wisely? Am I saving? Yes. Not to presume but do I have money available to give to the fulfillment of the Great Commission to be able to see souls saved, to give to the planting and the building of churches, to give the Pastors College Fund, to give in that day when we plan our first church, to give to those who are going on mission next teams. Do we have money available for that? To give to the mission, to see lives changed, souls won for Christ. Are we giving with that in mind? And are we keeping money for that that we have to spend I believe that would honor God I believe that is wise giving so in sum let us excel in the grace of giving 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 and should we save let us save in faith for future giving not in fear if we save let us save in faith not in fear. And if you're confused, saying, I don't know, is it saving? Is it hoarding? When in doubt, give. Okay? When in doubt, give. Remember the order. Give first, save second, spend last. Great. We will conclude there on giving and saving. We'd love to hear any of your thoughts there or questions. Uh, Tonight, I know that there's a lot to be convicted by, as I am when I prepare this. But we are seeking clarity tonight. We are seeking the Lord's will. We are seeking application tonight. And perhaps you have some questions that might pertain to how this applies in your giving or in your saving. Anyone? Yes, I'll say. Yeah, how are ways in which we might be replacing God with our saving? Once again, I'm hesitant to obviously, nor could I do this, give you numbers there. But if there's a sense where I always have to have a little more, you're never satisfied, you're never content, it's always a little more, I think that's a good peek into your heart. I think it's better to pray about it, establishing you, and if you're married, your wife, a goal in mind that you have in mind, discuss the reasons why, what this might cover, what is this for? Is it for emergency? What is the intent for savings? You must have an intent, I believe, for that. And then agree upon that. But if you find yourself perhaps meeting that goal, then it's like, oh, I need a little more, and then a little more. I think that's a good indication that perhaps your heart is seeking assurance in the wrong place. Yeah. Yes, Eddie. I think you can start, even if it's a couple of dollars a month. I think you start basically. I think you can start and build. 
Um, I think, once again, as I mentioned last week, to me, part of it is cultivating the habit of doing that. I think you may be surprised. You may not be able to save a lot, but there's power in, in accumulation and in monthly saving. But even at the initially, it may not seem like a lot to you. You're developing the habit. I think that is important. So I would start whatever you feel like you can. Stretch yourself. You may find you can save more than you think. So um, I think we're talking about habits. Thinking about discipline here. Start small. Yes, Elias. Hey, buddy. Uh, is it okay if you have more than 10%? Uh, great question, Elias. I'm glad you're here, first of all. Thanks for being here. And Rachel, too. Yes, absolutely. Tithing is just a starting place. It's not to be necessarily an ending place. So let's start with 10%. But as God gives you faith to give more, or there's needs, by all means, we want to increase our giving. Um, many authors here, Randy Alcorn, others, both these books, would advocate a graduated tithe. Meaning, as I make more money and have more money available, I'm working towards 20%, 30%. The issue is, how much money do you really need to live off? And whatever extra God gives you in salary, give it away. Give it away. For some who get a very healthy income, that may be giving eventually half away. You've determined what I need to live off of. Between you and the Lord, in faith, I believe this is a standard of living in my conscience that I can live with, agree with, that it would not be, in my mind, indulgent. Whatever God gives me, it is yours. And see what the Lord does. Yes, John. Right. 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 Not how much you give, but how much you keep. Because the reality is God owns it all. It's not like he just owns the 10%. Well, I've kind of given him a 10%. Now I have 90% to do what I want to do with. No, it's just as much his as well. He and his grace has allowed you to keep it, to steward it on his behalf. And he is using you as a means to distribute that money and to invest it wisely, but it's still his. So right, how much are you keeping is a great question. In fact, it's probably a better question than how much you give. We can be infatuated with numbers and amounts, but then God's looking at how much we keep for ourselves and how we're investing that money. Good. Yes, Mindy. Right, right. Right, great question. Yeah, I would tend to think it would be for a civic purpose as well, Melinda, as we see in the Macedonians for the collection for Jerusalem as well as in the temple. I would say it is a disposition of dispensation of grace or faith to give for that need beyond what may be logical. Now, I don't think that excuse is just meaning necessarily just carte blanche, just give everything away. But I think it is, there's times, maybe you can relate to this, where God has put in your heart to give something beyond what you feel like you can afford. It doesn't make sense in the budget, but God is giving you a grace and a faith to give. You don't, you don't even know why. You're not even sure how he's going to provide, but you, you feel compelled to give. I believe that's what we're talking about, beyond our means in that sense. I could be wrong there. But yes, I don't think, I think God does give that 
for certain things. Maybe you've experienced that. And then it becomes a matter of your conscience and obedience to go forth and give it and to trust him, even though you may not know where the money will come from. So I think there is times I've experienced that. Maybe you have as well. That we are called. And it's God doing the work. We're not doing it out of guilt. We're doing it in faith. I think that's the key there. We're doing it joyfully, not under compulsion. I think God will reward that. I think he's the one that put it in your heart in the first place as well, if it's true faith. Yes, second question. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, so can I get towards my business as well? I think you absolutely you can. I think what's your motive for your business? What are you desiring to accomplish through the business? Um, is the business a means to give back to the Lord as well? I think for all those things, it would be a good reason to invest um, wisely in a business. So I think that's a hard one. I think you have to sort that out with the Lord and look at your motive and heart intent. But I think there can be a righteous motive, certainly, investing in a company. Say, Lord, this is your company and the profits are yours, etc. I'm going to invest capital in that for future gain and giving. I think there's a righteous motive there, definitely. Anyone else? I think it's occasional, specific, and at times it will be beyond what we can spare. Certainly. Yeah, where you feel the cost. You feel the ouch factor. That's good. We need to feel that. I think it sharpens our faith as well and increases our faith, doesn't it? Not only does it meet the needs of the brother or sister, he or she is blessed, but your faith is built as well. It's a win-win situation. See, in God's economy, it's not a zero-sum game. Well, if I then give, I'll have no more. God can multiply. And he does, definitely. You give, and he'll receive more. Give, and it'll be given to you. Great. Wonderful. Why don't we close tonight? Thank you for your attentiveness. Let me pray in closing here. Uh, There's a lot to apply here, and we need God's grace, don't we? Just in the application for tonight. Well, Lord... So often I pray on this topic. I do ask this evening that there would not be condemnation, even an undue introspection, Lord, that would send us into a spiral, Lord, even a self-pity tonight. I know for some here there may be regret over their giving or saving. They're not where they want to be in their giving nor in their saving for the future. Lord, I ask you to part your grace tonight to start now to trust you for faithfulness and the discipline to follow you in your pattern 
as laid on in Scripture, forgiving, giving sacrificially, giving intentionally. Saving is not to presume upon others. Saving in faith for the days ahead. So, Lord, give us much grace. We need it. Oh, Father, we so often can falter in this area. Help us now. I believe you want to help us. Help us to look to the cross. You who became, who was rich, who became poor on our behalf. May you be our model, Savior. May you be our motive. May you be our empowerment to give, to give sacrificially when the world says we're crazy. Lord, when it makes no sense in our mind, and when we do it in faith, and may we see you provide. May we test you and put you to the test this week, this month, this year, and see if you'll not open the floodgates of heaven and provide all we need for us and even more to bless those around us. Make us a generous people, O oh Lord. Make us a generous church. The nations may hear and the nations may know that you are Lord and you are God, that you are Christ or our Savior. Amen.